The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, Francine. Hi, Dave. Uh, what a week uh, you have had, I think, haven't you? Well, we've I all had. I feel like what a month. We just keep oh. on talking about banks. Zoe Schneeweiss, who used to be our bureau chief yes. in Switzerland, said it best. The Swiss are boring until they're not. Until they're really not, right? Now, front page news everywhere. And you have been zooming around, I know, covering, covering this story. And I, we could have tried to get someone from Switzerland on this week. But actually, who do we get in the end is someone we've been trying to get on this <laughs> podcast since we started last year, I think. And it's like the perfect moment to have, I think, Jim O'Neill, don't you think? Yeah, so when we started talking about the podcast um, about eight months ago, you and I, Dave, were talking about, okay, who's the ideal economist who usually doesn't pull any punches, talks freely? And of course, it was Jim O'Neill, former Goldman Sachs economist, who coined the acronym BRIC. Exactly. And, you know, he was right at the centre of things in the last, in the big financial crisis of 2008. He's been a policy advisor, he's been in the government. Of course, he's a Manchester United a deal expert, uh, all these things are sort of converging at the moment. Um, so finally, he said yes, that he'd come in and talk to us. I'm Francine Lacroix. And I'm David Merritt. This is In the City, Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations at the heart of the City of London. And this week, we speak with former Conservative Minister and Goldman Sachs Chief Economist, Jim O'Neill. Jim O'Neill, the world-famous economist Ooh. who coined BRIC. He's now the House of Lords. Is that me? Who, ex-Treasury Minister? I was. What else do you have on your CV? Uh, I'm the chair of Northern Gritstone, which is a, actually probably the most fun thing I currently do, which is... Relatively new entity that invests in startups coming out of northern universities. Do you miss being in banking? No, not in the slightest. Particularly now, right? I mean, the sort of analytical bit about how the hell do we get out of this situation, I'd enjoy. In fact, one of the great things about my time in it is because there were so many of those events. I often say one of the sort of few things I think I learned is how individuals, I think it's probably true broader in life, but certainly in that world, how individuals responded during a crisis and how the leadership of an institution responded would be the mark of how they did in the next era, in my view. I think it's true as certainly the best investors, but it's probably true of an organisation as well. What do you mean, Jim? So if they accessed public money, then they're in a better shape now? Or no, I mean, they... I mean it more in sort of culture and leadership and sort of thoughtfulness about how you respond. And I guess below it, what I really mean is, um, you know, crises will always happen despite the best intentions of policymakers. Because at the end of the day, I think... They're a consequence of the, at one end, greed, and at the other end, fear, and whatever, you know, and it's just human nature. But we all have these strange minds where we forget things. So nobody ever really thinks about that, although it's the reality. Then a crisis happens, and most people 
kind of panic a bit. Uh, typically, people haven't been through them before and frequently don't make rational decisions about, you know, what's the right thing to do and what's going to happen. So UBS have had to bring back, therefore, yeah. Sergio Amotti, right? Yeah, I just so, saw that when I was walking in, yeah. <laughs> uh, so if the old phone rang, somebody saying, <laughs> we need to... <laughs> would, you, uh, would, you, would you take up the mantle no. again? No, I'm, I have too much fun doing things I do. It's actually 10 years ago in April that when I left Gorman, I, I promised myself that that was it. I was leaving because it was a nice time to leave for me and nobody really expected me to leave. And I, I sort of dreamt up this mantra, if it can't be better, it's got to be different about what I'd do. And I've kind of stuck to it, really. But how would you fix banks right now? What's going on in the banking system right now? I mean, to me, and I'm obviously I'm not in it 24-7 like I used to be, but for my 40,000 feet, I think it's revealed one thing again that we always know is that whenever interest rates rise sharply the weak get found out it, it is quite simple and quite remarkable how that theme just does repeat what's the great phrase history, history never repeats itself but it rhymes i mean in that instance it is i'm i'm really reminded of uh, my days at sbc before i went to goldman where in 94 the gang I was with, and just the research guys, but also some of the prop traders there, we were very confident the Fed was going to start raising rates, and we thought we were such geniuses and blah, 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 blah. And we got completely hosed uh, because of the broader things with the bank's exposure to uh, Eurobonds, it was at the time. And it's just so difficult when, when that's happening, and that's at the core of this. And then, but secondly... It's just so difficult for the regulators to treat every financial entity with the right approach. I think what seems to, famous last words, what seems to be uh, robust, which is a consequence of last time, is what the broadly put in place for big banks seems to be robust enough. But what, what they made a huge error on, and from what I vaguely read, I think the Silicon Valley bank guys played a bit of a naughty game is they deliberately kept their equity size below the number of where they become subject to full uh, serious regulatory focus and that was obviously an error of the regulators so i think i'm assuming all of that will get changed i think the credit swiss thing is slightly unique because obviously that is one of the 30 banks that was supposedly too big to fail and it had the correct regulatory net and that bit, I don't know. I mean, another oddity about this, which is a contrast to 08, is that because short rates are so high on government debt uh, in the US and the UK, you know, for any rational person that has a bit of cash they're exposing the bank that they don't need, you can basically get the same rate of return in two years or less government money. So what is the incentive right now to do anything other than put it in a government? And that, that means that particularly for uh, banks that aren't so strong in terms of deposit basis, quite a lot of them are probably under the cosh as we speak. So are we going to see more in trouble or is this now contained? I mean, we have seen this mega deal in Switzerland try to contain the, the bleeding of the system there, but and, and SVB obviously has been resolved, but are there, I mean, the interest rate situation is what it is, right? So uh, is there more to come? You know, I think if you if you go back over the 
whole of my career, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a magic solution. Monetary policy can't solve everything. It's a blunt instrument in that sense. And uh, what is the prime job of the central banks? We've lived it for much of our generation thinking it's to fight inflation. But every time there's a huge financial crisis, actually what their prime job is to ensure financial stability. And I think of what we've seen from them in the past three weeks, I think is actually pretty impressive in terms of the speed in which they reacted, which of course is driven by what happened in 08, and it's very impressive. Uh, and I think that tells you that in the event of some further big problems that especially start to threaten some of the big guys, you know, there'll, there'll be more hints of broader deposit support that Janet Yellen clearly flirted with, and then she backed off. But the interesting thing is, because of the tricky to measure, but probably important mechanism from those weakened banks that then curtail their lending, this might start doing some of the Fed's job and the Bank of England's job and other central banks' job for them. Right. So it stops the need for other rate hacks. Yes, yeah, certainly if there's a credit crisis. When you look at our mobile apps, mm. does it encourage bank runs? We had the Citigroup chief executive saying, like, look, maybe regulation needs to look at this. So you have a lot of online fakes. Mm. We had the, you know, I don't know if you saw the Pope with the big puffer jacket. That was a fake. You had, there's, there's so that. much fakes and there's so much mobile app. I think like, is this a perfect concoction? I think mobile phones have got a lot to answer for. Right. Frankly. Board, and that, right? I mean, what, for banks? More broadly. I'm still waiting for somebody to tell me why Facebook and Twitter are serve any useful purpose to society and more you know more if you look at it from a true macroeconomics perspective we've we've had this staggering and i'm on the damn thing all day long as well by the way and we've had this staggering rise of this during a collapse of productivity in the western world and i think it's a quite relevant issue to focus on about the rise of ai um because what is the point of all these things if they don't boost productivity? Why are they useful things for society? But and if, we're beyond if these that. allow banks to but have runs in in false circumstances, then clearly it's not. But also runs at a record oh, yeah, speed, right? I mean, in 2008, people had to queue around the block. <laughs> yeah, you had to get your place in the queue. <laughs> right. Which, and of now course, in England, it was, a, all it, was do. A, it was a day. Yeah, exactly, which we're very pleased to do. But so, so the, and you mentioned the speed of the mm. regulators, but if everyone can pull their cash out in hours, you know, what can the regulators do to sort of catch it's, that? It, it, it adds to the problems facing them. I mean, it's, of course, always so easy for people to criticize regulators, but that's one of the core things as to why it's so hard for them. Because, you know, quite rightly, they've always got the moral hazard issue at the back of their minds. And if they certainly wouldn't have supported Silicon Bank as quickly as they did, that could have been a catastrophe for, you know, normal human beings, never mind all of us closeted people who've been in the world of finance. And in Britain, there was some praise for the government about how they responded on the, you know, mm. on the SVB situation. Over the weekend, they, they brokered the deal with HSBC and everyone on Monday morning thought, look, Britain's regulators are working quite well um it's all quite neat is that something you listen you i messaged people i know in the policy world myself saying exactly that i thought and that you know this has not been i'm a crossbencher by the way so i'm a liberty to neutral neutrals so i can criticize or compliment anybody uh on the political side 
and uh, this government or this colour of government has not been that difficult to criticise in the past few years. <laughs> Uh, but on this, I thought the, it was very impressive policy. The speed in which they reacted was very impressive. And I think they kind of, you know, HSBC, it, it was probably a very, a very difficult thing to not do, given the price they got it for. But is this the government or is this Sam Woods at the Bank of England with Andrew Bailey? Is it the regulators? I think, it, I think uh, it's almost definitely all of them. Uh, and I think it's a, reflect, it's a coincidental reflection of the character of this prime minister. And the, in that sense, I think we have a couple of adults in the room for the first time in a few years. Um, you know, not, they might not be the most exciting personalities to lead a country in our chancellor as well, but I think it's a reflection of how they are as, as thinkers, because they would, particularly Rishi, because he's, you know, he's a, he was in finance, so he'd know straight away, better do something pretty sharpish. But I think uh, the Bank of England guys played a big role too. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And as you said, Jim, it's been years, hasn't it, uh, since it's been possible or since I've heard people, you know, in your position experience for lavishing praise <laughs> on the British government. Doesn't come so easy these days. <laughs> sort of through clenched teeth. So, so are you a bit more optimistic then for the reputation of Britain or the, the city of London in general with this administration? I mean, it's such a subjective topic to talk about and so easy for the kind of crazy decisions this country has made in recent years to think that you know the city's in trouble but as i'm sure fran you and i've over the years talked about this we have some really basic forty thousand feet unique advantages that are hard to get rid of and because of the sheer history uh, of financial markets and therefore the depth of what might loosely be called the talent pool and our regulatory system and our uh, legal system, it's pretty hard for anybody else in this time zone to get even close to the role that London can play in global finance. Um, but, we, you know, we're chipping, we're chipping away at the edges, that's for sure. So what should the government do? And what If you had to give a report card to this government and regulators, what would it be? Well, on a tangential close tangent part of it, I am partly involved in aspects of this now because 
I was asked by Rachel Reeves to lead this so-called startup review into the future of you know small businesses and new startups becoming successful because it's a huge seeming dilemma in this country that we we have all these brilliant universities and lots of great ideas but we we fail to develop seemingly too many lasting successful businesses out of them in the UK and so uh, that was quite fun doing that and I'm a big fan of those aspects of the so-called Edinburgh reforms and they, they need to go further it is bizarre how many assets are big pension fund and insurance companies hold and how little they invest in domestic uh, risk assets. And uh, we made a number of proposals, which I think under a different government would be adopted. But as is the nature of parts of the odd way how politics seems to be conducted here, the incumbent government is also on the case about many of those same ideas now, whether it's because they've thought of them themselves or they're like, as they've done with other things, just pinch what the opposition is saying. But so I think there's quite a lot of momentum to use the freedoms away from being in the EU and to play around with solvency too, to, to allow, if not force, some more long-term domestic investment, whether it be in infrastructure or uh, scale-ups or, or to get, empower the British business But that bank would be protectionism. More. Is that protectionism? If you if you force investment I mean, domestically? call it what you want. I mean, it's kind of what goes on in many parts of the world. And the US has always, from my experience, been so brilliant at this as, you know, being the leader of free markets, but being pretty clever at subsidizing a lot of its technology businesses through... Uh, homeland security, for example, or through the defense spending. I mean, would Google and others have actually ever been what they are if it wouldn't have been for support from the US early government early on? And to be honest, Fran, I think it is necessary because if you look, you know, and, and again, I spend lots of time on this because of all the stuff I'm doing around the North. But more broadly, if you look at Britain's biggest problem, which is low productivity and with it, extremely persistently weak investment spending we got to do something about boosting investment spending both from the government itself but also on the incentives for the private sector it does entail if you do that and i'm sure some regulators now because of the banking issue will try to uh it, it may raise fresh risk about the mark to market issues of how uh, you know because it's long-term investing in risk assets is risky but no risk, no return. How can you persuade the big pots of money to invest or take on more risk that sit in the city of London? I mean, you, you know, there's solvency too is one angle of this, of course, but how can we create more of an investment in risk culture in the city? I spent endless time on this and it was a, it's the core feature of, of the startup review, but it because of proposed and because the psychology of businesses, well, Labour might win. So... A lot of big business people, especially risk takers in this space, uh, have been in touch with me. And so I'm, I'm, think, I'm spending a lot of time on this every week. And I think the real answer is because of the, the culture we have and how long some of these things have been going wrong, it's probably not that easy. You know, for the big, big institutional investment managers, particularly ones of a somewhat younger generation than me, they've been brought in a culture where dividend, dividend yields and gilts is all that they need to do. We've got to change the risk-reward culture around that. 
and it will involve some possible cost because who the hell's going to buy all these gilts if they're not buying as many but we we need to change the way their incentives work so one way linked to solvency too which i think is going to happen is you change the rule in which they account for long-term liabilities to have it more sensitive to anything other than guilt yields because when you really that's more the u.s model i think it's more like the u.s model because when you certainly think back to it and following the mad few weeks of Liz Trust, you know, from my vantage point, that disaster ended up being as bad as it was because we discovered that a large section of that crowd, basically for the best part of a decade, been taking hugely leveraged bets on gilts. And is that the right thing for our long-term institutions to do? Uh, and I think the answer is no. We need people to be investing in things that will boost the country's long-term growth performance and whether that including by the way more of them holding publicly quoted equities listed in the uk because that's partly why nobody ever lists in the uk anymore because there's no domestic investors and it becomes a bit of a vicious circle in the days of when uh maggie was first around uh, and we began to privatize some of the endless state entities of the time before your time, I might suggest. Many, many Be decades oh, before oh, my time. Oh, only, the beginning <laughs> I of, only the beginning of mine. Uh, it became known as Call Sid, <laughs> where you would basically have a huge campaign aimed at you know anybody in the country about how good it was for the country for them to buy shares in BP or BT. Yes. So one yeah, thing yeah. you could do in that, you could, you know, on the... I don't know what the pension schemes are like here, but on, on many of these days, you, you're asked to, do you want to invest in, do you want your pension to go into equity but, or dividend, or Jim, you can these, add two more, you say, I know, actually... These are all ideas. Will they push it through? I mean, Dave I, and I spend a lot of time in saying, look, there's also the cost of living crisis, the government wants to be re-elected, like, this could be low-hanging fruit, but will they actually get it done if they have so much else to worry about? It seems to me that both mainstream political parties are, are working quite seriously on this stuff and you know the real answer to the, the the cyclical intense challenges we've got is we need to be able to grow uh, boost the growth rate in a non-inflationary way but if you just put sticking plaster on solving the cost of living crisis in the way that generally is trying to be done all that means is when you try and boost the growth rate again you're going to go straight back into it so you've got to be able to boost the capacity of the country to grow without generating inflation. And again, it goes back to adults being in the room. If I look at some of the things they said in the budget, it's probably the, more, the most serious supply-side boosting budget I've seen, uh, certainly since the days of Osborne, and maybe a bit, sorry, George, maybe even a bit before. You know, on things to do, again, that I'm heavily involved in, on devolution and giving more powers to English regions, certainly the most serious stuff we've seen since Osborne. You know, we might be just a year away from an election, and it sounds like you feel that the other side of the aisle and Rachel Reeves, they, they're not going to be radically different in their approach to this. I mean, I think that's part of the intriguing thing here. If you, you did one of those games where you, you sort of dubbed Rachel's voice with somebody else's in the Tory side and otherwise with the current Chancellor, would you know the difference on a number of issues? Well, Bloomberg, we would. <laughs> well, you, of course, you would, because you're so savvy. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that I think 
in that sense, maybe we're coming a little bit back like towards the early 90s. And maybe there's a hint of broader things. You can see it a bit in other countries that some of the sort of lunatic fringe people of the past decade don't seem to be quite in the middle of the game anymore. But And so in that sense, I kind of quite welcome it. But, I, you know, I don't... I've got to know uh, the opposition leaders pretty well, and I think they're quite credible people. Have you bought United yet? Oh, God, I knew you'd raise that topic. <laughs> and for this how much? Really what, what, we want to ask what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Who's United? Yeah. Uh, Have you, though? No. How, what, what I don't get about the core issue of that, so many people don't seem to understand that one billion pounds is like an enormous amount of money. <laughs> you know, there's, you know, never mind yeah. four or five. You know, so there's, there is literally very as as this rather public. That's a fascinating part of it. I've never come across a publicly quoted company having such such this game going on via, in this case, sports media, to effectively try and boost the value of the asset. It, there must be some pretty fine issues about the whether the New York Stock Exchange should be having a look at that because it's it's literally three months of this madness. But what it's revealed that there's only two entities, from what I can see, that uh, how do I put it, seem to think it is uh, possible for them to afford to buy this thing because it's a huge amount of money. That they seem to be asking for. Can a football club ever be worth that much? Five five billion pounds. I mean, I think early on when I was la maybe last on with France, she annoyingly dragged some of this out of me. Then, um, <laughs> we'll just play the tape on that. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that the next twenty years for the commercialization of football is going to be anything like the last twenty. So. Anybody that's spending that kind of money on the basis that they're going to get a return on it probably needs to go and visit their GP. Un unless the Super League is back. That, that wouldn't do it. But, that's, not, yeah, that's not enough. The, it, no. That would help. But I think uh, unless the Super League idea is proposed in a very different way, and in particular to have relegation and promo uh, promotion... There's no way, uh, famous last words, there's no way that the fans, and for that reason the regulators, would allow them to do it in the foreseeable future. But is this all because of Chelsea? I think the United thing is, United is unique. Again, going back to my deep, deep obsession with it and my own history as somebody that used to travel around the world as much as I did. You know, as soon as I breathe Manchester, unless it was Japan where the cab drivers can't speak English or seem to pretend they can't, they can't. Everywhere else, literally Manchester United, anywhere, anywhere, it is, it is a staggering, staggering brand. So United is quite unique, but adjusted, you know, it's not impossible that the Chelsea guys put in peak football price because they paid a crazy price for it. And look at the mess that's going on there. According to my info, there wasn't a single buyer trying to get hold of Liverpool because it's a huge amount of money. And and so you're really talking at somebody that has some sort of philanthropic type purpose, but even, you know, what person is going to devote billions of pounds to that unless it's part of some broader 
uh, strategy they've got. Hence why there's only two. Although the sellers seem to keep trying to create the idea that there's another six that nobody just knows about yet, which, <laughs> come on. Who do you think it'll go to? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I always I get know. you in trouble. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know. What I really hope, and they both know this because I chat with them, I hope if the owners actually sell it, I hope the new owners treat it as the brand that it is, but have a real purpose and bring a connection back to where it's from and actually link it into uh, Manchester's development and Manchester's role in the Northern Powerhouse, etc., etc., etc. Because if they don't, uh, whoever buys it, they will find out a few months later that they might not be the most popular guys on the planet either. Although, of course, the fans right now are desperate for it to be anybody other than the current guys. Jim O'Neill, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's In the City. We'll be back next week. If you like our show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review and subscribe. Yes, it helps people find our show. So please take a second and leave a rating. This episode was hosted by me, Francine Lacroix. And me, David Merritt. It was produced by Summer Saadi. Additional editing was by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Jim O'Neill. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.